And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We are at the Minnesota Capitol this hour to talk about Minnesota politics. It's a little hard to believe, but it's only been about four months since the election and only two months since the legislative session began. And it has been busy. This week, state finance officials put out the final forecast lawmakers will use to set a new two-year state budget showed a surplus of $17.5 billion, even with inflation factored in. Governor Tim Walz will be here later this hour to talk about his plans for the surplus and his priorities for the session. But first, I'm joined by two expert observers at the Capitol and the legislature. Dana Ferguson is part of our reporting team here at NPR News. She's a senior political reporter. And Peter Callahan is here. He covers the Capitol for MinPost. Welcome, both of you, and thanks for coming. Uh, Dana, give me the overview first. It sounds like, uh, it seems like things have started very, very quickly over the past couple of months. Is that true and is it by design? It is true and it is by design. DFL leaders have told us that they wanted to get going early, get a lot of things done, and they have been pretty effective in doing that. They've passed dozens of bills between the two chambers. Um, they've the governor signed t- into law, I believe, 11 now, uh, with the latest coming today. Um, and they both have teed up in the Senate and the House, just tons of bills ready for their action. So it's been uh, very active, and it's kept all of us uh, very busy. <laughs> mm. Well, Peter Callahan, what about that? Uh, is the pace such that it's hard to keep everything straight, keep up with everything? Uh, yes. The the snowstorm last week actually made it worse because they canceled three days and they decided to combine those three days into the five days this week. So a lot of press events that were canceled, uh, committee meetings are going over time. Friday is oftentimes they do not meet, but a bunch of the committees are trying to catch up. So there was a, uh, a fire hose of news and events this week. Does that make your job harder? Uh, yeah, nobody... Not even I care about whether my job is hard or not, but sure, mm. yeah. I mean, it's it's. I do. You, I thank you. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> it's the triaging takes you up to a, a level that it wouldn't otherwise. Meaning, there are things that I might have wanted to look at and write about this week, um, but there were so many other things that in my brain uh, rose higher than that. So mm. I skipped things and hope to catch up with them later that I otherwise would have covered. Okay. Well. Um, Earlier this week, as I mentioned, uh, the Management and Budget Agency put out that forecast, uh, $17.5 billion. And Dana, it seemed to me that uh, some people felt like just shrugged it off. Well, $17.5 billion, that's what it was last time, so no big deal. Is that how it felt to you? Yeah, um, I think people, after the last forecast, that sizable jump in the amount of the surplus from Uh, last year to December. Uh, When we didn't see that on Monday, it wasn't quite as big of a leap coming out. Folks didn't have the strong reaction they did back then. They said, all right, this is what we've got. We're ready to go with it. It's pretty close to what we thought, though we can have a conversation about whether or not that's true, given the new inflation factor built in. Um, But just not quite that same wow factor that we saw in December. Hmm. And so they were just not quite as enthralled. Not as thrilled, not as exciting. And yeah. I think some of the tone uh, carried that. And Peter, uh, let's have that discussion because uh, I think they kind of sold it as it's a stable and it's steady. 
But if you do look at it and you factor inflation in, and it was a 17.6 before and now it's 17.5, it's actually grown, right? Yeah, it's grown significantly, and, and we are numbed by these numbers now. But the if, if the governor had not signed this bill that requires MMB to to flow inflation back up onto the spending side. They just reported it uh, sort of below the line. Uh, uh, the MMB commissioner, Showalter, would have said $19 billion. That's hmm. what the forecast number would have been. So the difference of a week and signing that bill let them drop it down to $17.5 billion. But, but in that time, they missed again on the revenue forecast. In two months' time, they have had to increase the estimate of what revenue will be in the next two, uh, the two-year budget starting in July by $1.5 billion. That used to be the size of big surpluses. Right. And now we, we consider it budget dust. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, I guess that does show that the underlying economy is, is strong and healthy. Yeah, it's it's everybody's been waiting for this recession for the last well since the COVID brief COVID recession. Everybody's been waiting for this to happen, and the forecasts keep saying, "Well, we're we see a recession out there in six months, eight months, twelve months." Mm-hmm. Um, now we have a very brief what the uh, uh, state economist uh, Dr. Colin Pakitas referred to as a investment driven recession. And I said, what is that? <laughs> and it's just not a consumer-driven recession, meaning it, it isn't caused by us spending less money and having that effect on the, on the economy. It's sort of corporations and how much they're investing and whether they're investing in inventories like they otherwise would have. And a very brief, very shallow technical recession is all we have in the, in the offing right now. Hmm. And of course, if you uh, listen to Republicans, they'll say this is clearly a sign that Minnesotans are overtaxed. And Dana, uh, Republicans tried to put a tax plan out this week. They don't have the votes to pass it. But uh, is there going to be a big tax debate coming up in the session? I think there will be. And we've heard little bits and pieces of that. There's been a push uh, from members of both parties to bring forward the social security cut as part of that conversation about rebate checks or about more permanent tax cuts that ought to come as part of this uh, conversation around just how much money the state has. Um, And the leaders this week talked about, you know, we're going to get to all of this. We've just started. This really launches us into deeper conversations about what our tax plan is going to look like. But I imagine that's a discussion that's going to be running through May and that will be one of the last issues to get resolved this session. Mm-hmm. And uh, Peter Callahan, so far uh, the Democrats seem to have kept their slim majorities together remarkably well. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but um, do you think they can keep doing that? Well, the I've always observed that if you're a new majority, meaning the Senate, uh, it's easier to keep your folks together because they remember it was so recently that they were ignored and had no power whatsoever. It's a little harder when you have a, a continuing majority like the House DFL does because you, know, you take it for granted after a while. That said, uh, Speaker Hortman has what appears to be a pretty united uh, caucus that they were able to hold against uh, on, on the abortion rights bills against all amendments. Uh, most of the things that have come in have been, you know, hard bills, but party lines. She's lost hardly any of her members, even on amendments. 
Um, it's harder in the in the Senate, but again, the freshness of the majority in the Senate kind of I think gives them a more uh, esprit de corps. Mm-hmm. But the hard co- things are coming. Social right. Security, uh, full repeal of Social Security is yet to come, and that's one where the Senate DFL is not appear to be as united. Yeah, that's the tax, the state tax on Social Security. Correct. We should just be clear. Um, what are you looking for next week, Dana? Well, we're going to have a conversation on Monday in the House about the bonding bill. Um, surprise, kind of a bonding bill coming together uh, a couple weeks ago, came out of almost nowhere. And now uh, Republicans and Democrats are saying there are pieces of that they feel good about. Um, so it'll be a matter of what gets added on from Republicans' perspective to potentially win them over. Um and then the Senate's having a little tougher time getting that to a place where they can all agree. Um, in addition, just so many committees are going to be meeting as they try to get things passed before the first deadline on Friday. So I anticipate a lot of long nights, uh, very packed committee hearings as they talk about all these bills that they want to get across that first finish line. And Peter, what are you watching for next week and beyond? Yeah, Dana is correct that you've, when you've got a cutoff like this and bills have to clear a committee to stay alive, um, that means that things like marijuana don't need to face that deadline because they've all uh, cleared, what, 12 committees? I mean, these bills are going to mm-hmm. multiple committees. Sports betting is cleared a committee. Uh, things like that are o- okay per these deadlines, and nothing ever dies in, in legislative bodies, but it, at least some bill numbers might die. Um, so, you're, yeah, they, these committees have to go through their table of bills that have come before them, try to take action on as many as they can. And they might be – the sponsors never consider them secondary bills, but we might see them in the scope of, of life here as being sort of secondary and tertiary type bills. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for setting the table for us here. Peter Callahan covers the Capitol for MinPost. Thanks, Peter. And Dana Ferguson, you hear her right here on NPR. Thanks, Dana. Thanks. Programming is supported by Bremer Bank, with bankers who know that in business, relationships matter more than ever. And understanding is everything. More at bremer.com. The Minnesota legislature has been in session for two months now, and a lot has been happening, and happening fast. Here are some notable moments we've heard so far, starting with DFL House Speaker Melissa Hortman on January 3rd, the first day. In my role to call the balls and strikes, as I see them, I will do the best I can, and I will make mistakes. And so will all of you. And I... (laughs) I offer to you what I ask that you return to me, which is grace and understanding. We are enacting the most extreme bill in the country. Democrat extreme bills. An extreme bill. The most extreme. 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 Heartless and barbaric. This extreme bill that's moving at the speed of light. This bill is too extreme for you, your district, or for Minnesota. This is a part of your extreme agenda. I cannot imagine more extreme policy than, well, I can imagine it because you've proposed that too. Fundamentally, this legislation is about who decides. 
who should be legally entitled to make reproductive health care decisions for an individual. It can't be decided by politicians. It can't be decided by judges. So to Minnesotans, know that your access to reproductive health and your right to make your own health care decisions are preserved and protected. And because of this law, that won't change with the political winds or the makeup of the Supreme Court. This is a bill for Minnesotans today and all future generations. It is law. At times like this, I like to look to our experts uh, to really help us figure out through. I wish we had an in-house expert on the weather that could help us determine whether we should take some time off or not. I'm not sure if that was a yield to the question, Mr. President, but uh, yes, uh, snow tonight. We may get a little break tomorrow, uh, and then Wednesday night into Thursday, a lot of snow and a lot of wind, so uh, buckle up. You may have missed this amid all the storm coverage, but the Minnesota Senate debated late last night into the wee hours of this morning, and when all was said and done, they passed a pair of bills, one that would grant felons voting rights, another lets people get driver's licenses regardless of their immigration status. That's what this bill is going to do. One more tool for the $17.6 billion surplus that the government and the majority is sitting on, like the Scrooge McDuck pot of gold, and not giving that money back to the people of Minnesotans who want their money back. The application of deepfakes is getting increasingly sophisticated and increasingly dangerous. So, for instance, there were deepfakes created of Ukrainian President Zelensky telling uh, soldiers to retreat. Uh, and to give up uh, that were distributed uh, in, during the, the war in Ukraine by um, Russian uh, advocates there. It's so creepy, and, and I feel like I'm living out a Saturday morning cartoon where some diabolical scientist came and could do all this. It's just unbelievable that we're here. Government, get consistent. Come up with the age, whatever it is, and then stand by it. Don't have it be 18 here, 21 here, and I've even heard talk of 25 for cannabis. Give me a break. And those are just some of the sounds we've heard over the past few weeks here at the Minnesota Capitol. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. One thing that is different this year is it's a different world for Republicans at the Capitol, especially in the Minnesota Senate. They went from holding a narrow majority in the past few years to being in the minority this time. Democrats have 34 seats, Republicans have 33, which means the Democrats get to chair the committees and control the agenda, including what happens to that big budget surplus. So what can Republicans do? How much say will they have in what passes this year? Here to help us find out is the Republican minority leader of the Minnesota Senate, Mark Johnson of East Grand Forks. Senator, thanks so much for coming on today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. And like we were talking about earlier, it's great to actually put a face to the voice I've heard over the years here. So thank well, you for having me on. And as I told you, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's how, <laughs> that's how it goes. Now, first, let me ask you, uh, you've had the job a couple months now. Right. Was it a good decision, or do you have major regrets? Do you wake up in the morning and think, what was I thinking? You know, it, it definitely is a learning experience to do, but there's great people down here at the Capitol. We have great people on our team, and and so I am very happy and honored to be leading the Senate Republicans where I am right now, that's for sure. Uh, you and your Republican colleagues over in the House uh, put out a plan this week after the right. surplus was announced uh, for taxes. You want to cut 
tax rates, you want to eliminate that tax on Social, social Security earnings, mm-hmm. and you want rebate checks. Right. Um, you don't have the votes to pass it yourselves. So why do that? Are you just trying to highlight the differences with the Democrats, or do you think you can have some real say in what happens here at the end? Mike, you're, you're spot on. We want to make sure that we're contrasting our message to what the Democrats have been spending a lot of their time focusing on right now. You know, they're, they're focusing on priorities that we didn't hear at the doors. We never heard we need to grow government by 25%. We never heard we need to start raising Minnesota's taxes. What we consistently heard was, what are you going to do with that surplus? You have $17.5 billion. How do you get that back to us, the taxpayers? And at the top of that list, of course, you mentioned Social Security tax. How do we, how do we quit taxing the benefit that you know a lot of our elderly and vulnerable are are relying on day in and day out uh, for their rent payments for their subsistence uh, that's one that the governor has said that that he supports some aspects of it but we say let's not pick winners and losers let's just make sure we're doing what minnesotans want and get that back to them what what the democrats do say about social security is if you eliminate it entirely it gives kind of an expensive break to the people at the very top. Uh, whereas if you just, uh, some income is already exempt. If you just broaden that exemption a little, it's more fair. Wow. What, what do you think sure. about that argument? Well, Mike, we're, we're one of only 11 states currently that, that actually tax Social Security benefits. We're not here to pick winners and losers. What we want to make is, is Minnesotans' lives easier, better more productive. And so by taking their money away from them through this tax, it, it limits their opportunities. So, you know, you can f- spin it however you'd like on that, but the reality is that we're limiting opportunities when we tax that Social Security benefit. Now, you did have, as I mentioned, uh, a rebate portion uh, right. in your plan, and some people noted that, well, the governor proposed a rebate too, but yours is not quite the same, right? It, it's not quite the same, but you know, last year we weren't dead set against a rebate. It was just part of a larger picture that we were looking at. And this, we worked into our package, so I believe it's about $1,100 per individual, uh, $2,200 for a married couple that would be going out uh, to taxpayers across the state. Uh, it's a way of just getting that money back right away. It's part of, of our larger package, too, of this is an immediate thing that would help people when they're going out to buy their groceries or pay for the car. But then also it couples with our our tiering uh, deductions that we have there on income tax, mm-hmm. uh, the property tax relief that people would see, uh, child care uh, tax credit as well. Um, so this is a really a two-part. It's tax relief for today and then also tax relief for tomorrow. And it's something that we heard a lot about at the doors. And so it's a matter of us being responsive to what Minnesotans want. Uh, we're not here to, to you know, the, what the Democrats have been focused on lately is, is making sure that felons can vote. And, uh, you know, there's a number of social type issues that we didn't hear at the door. So we're trying to address Minnesota's problems that they are looking at right now. Um, the governor has proposed some tax increases in his uh, budget, including uh, increase on capital gains. Right. And uh, there seems to be a fair amount of support among Democrats about that idea. Again, they say it's a fairness thing, that, that people trading stocks did very well during the pandemic, and, sure. and maybe they should pay a bigger share. Uh, I assume that's just a non-starter with your caucus. Right. We're not going to make Minnesota better by 
taxing everything that we can possibly tax. One of the other taxes that uh, that was proposed was inflating the price of your new vehicle by 160% and taxing you on that inflated price on your vehicle. On the tabs. On the tabs, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, how are we going to be, if we tax everything in this state at inflated prices, how are we going to be attracting those high-quality workers, businesses, those types of people to come to the state to build the economy, build our communities, then we really need that. And, and this is not a solution to growing Minnesota. Well, uh, there was a deal on the table at the end of last year. Yeah, there was. It was, would have eliminated that Social Security tax. Yep. It would have cut the tax, the income tax rate. Um, right. The governor suggested this week that uh, the Republicans rolled the dice. They thought they'd, they'd be in charge this year and get a better deal, and they lost. Yeah. How do you respond to that? I, I, I just I am shocked at, at that comment by him because if you look at the footage, go back to last year, and there's a couple of instances where you can see that we were working in good faith, whereas the governor and the House certainly were not. Uh, we had an agreement with the House uh, on the concept of the tax bill, our members were waiting in the committee, wanting to pass it. That was that was the, the committee where the House and the Senate get together and they pass it out. And the governor and the House would not let their members come and sit and pass that, that out of the conference committee. Uh, so this wasn't our members that were doing this. When he said it was crocodile tears, I think it's the governor, uh, quite frankly, that uh, is crying the crocodile tears at this point. Uh, there is talk of a bonding bill. In fact, it's coming up yeah. in committee next week. And that's a, a big public works construction all around the state. Right. And uh, they call it bonding because you sell bonds to raise the money yeah. to do it. And to do that, based on the Constitution, you have to have a three-fifths majority, 60%, which yeah. means if you're going to pass it through the Senate, how many? Seven or eight Seven. Republicans Seven. have to vote for it? Yeah. So uh, are your members going to – are the seven Republicans going to step up and vote for that? Well, this – Republicans, Senate Republicans are very much in favor of a bonding bill. I mean this, this takes care of the basic infrastructure of Minnesota. So roads and bridges, wastewater, just all those basic necessities that our communities need from the metro to the rural. And we understand that and we really want to see this go forward. The other thing that we really want to see too is – tax relief for Minnesotans. That's another big issue that that most people have been hearing about. So it's a win-win for the Democrats because it's what Minnesotans need. So let's push both of those together. And so we want to see some policies coming out uh, from our tax chair, uh, Senator Rest, uh, on her proposals of how we can do that moving forward. And so you know, we're going to take some time. It's so early in the session. Usually, and you've been around this for a long time, Mike, mm-hmm. you know that that's the last bill that, that usually leaves before we go sign die, the bonding bill is. So we've got a lot of time before that happens. So let's try to work this together and get to the end. And, and we can land in a place where I actually think we can get quite a bit of agreements between both caucuses. Let me ask you two quick questions to end here. Uh, Democrats, including the governor, say they're delivering on what the voters told them last fall. How do you see it? Yeah, so that that's really interesting. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're out there and, and you're talking to folks, you're at the cafe, you're at the, uh, the meetings, whatever it might be, um, people are talking about public safety. They're talking about, you know, is my child reading at the appropriate grade level? They're talking about, you know, like we were talking, um, uh, tax relief. I, I didn't hear anybody uh, when I'm out and about saying, how can we get felons to vote earlier? How, how can we do that? Because that's really what I want to do. Or, hey, we should do free, uh, free and reduced uh, lunch for all students. 
Well, I think what they're saying, you know, when we're when we're talking to them is, how can I make sure that my kid is reading at the appropriate level? How can we make sure that our education system uh, is working to make sure that our kids are prepared to move forward? Those have not been the focus of the DFL. What we really want to do is make sure that that we are addressing the needs of Minnesotans, and it just seems that they're so off base uh, so far this session. Hopefully, that changes going forward. But really disappointed in their priorities. So what? Uh, what then? Is your role, your caucus's role for the session, can you block legislation or do you want to try to influence it? And are they listening to you? Yeah. So, you know, when I came into this position, my goal is to build those relationships uh, across uh, the aisle with the DFL and ensuring that, you know, our area, because we represent a lot of rural Minnesota, how can we make sure that rural and metro is both, uh, you know, satisfied with the outcome of this? So, doing amendments, making sure that we're having those conversations of, of building a bill that works for all Minnesotans. The trouble that we've had, Mike, and you've seen this a lot, is no substantive amendments have been accepted on, on these substantial bills. The communication between us and the DFL, for the most part, has been really cut off uh, throughout this whole process, which uh, is really disappointing, and it does a disfavor for half of Minnesota. So hopefully at some point, um, they will come to the table and start working with us and building a you know, just legislation that works for all of Minnesota. And I, I think folks should be holding uh, the Democrats accountable for what's being happened, the extreme bills, the extreme things that we've been seeing coming to the committees and the floor and saying, let's work together. That's what they asked us to do. And we hope that they certainly will do that. Senator Mark Johnson, the Republican minority leader of the Minnesota Senate. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Hope we get to talk again before the session Wonderful. ends. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this time, Mike. It was a joy. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're at the Minnesota Capitol this hour to talk about Minnesota politics. Two months of the legislative session are passed already. The DFL majorities in the House and Senate have set a quick pace in passing their priority bills. And DFL Governor Tim Walz said this week his hand is getting sore from signing them all. <laughs> it was confirmed this week that the governor and legislature have a $17.5 billion surplus to work with as they set the next two-year budget. And so far, the only plan on the table for that budget comes from Governor Walls, who joins me now in our Capitol Bureau. Governor, thanks so much for coming today. Good to be with you, Mike. Uh, as I say, the legislature has been busy these first two months. Do you think uh, what they've done so far aligns with what the voters want? I do, and I think a lot of this, what you're seeing in this pacing is, is that we've become accustomed, I think, unfortunately, to the gridlock around here that forced us into special sessions, and um, we couldn't reach some compromises. I do. We came right out of the block with a tax conformity bill that should have been done last year to make sure when Minnesotans are filing their taxes that it conforms with federal law. What we're seeing is that's speeding up tax returns, and we're taking just about a week and getting those processed and getting refunds back to people. We came out talking about the things that, that Minnesotans uh, told us during the election they cared about, protecting women's reproductive freedoms, uh, making sure we didn't leave federal money on the table for infrastructure, making sure we did those matching dollars. So I think that's what Minnesotans were talking about. And then we're having healthy debates on uh, on issues around uh, how do we get this money back into people's hands? How do we make sure we're preparing an economy that works for the future? Uh, I hear it every single day from uh, from small businesses that their concern is finding workers. It's a it's a good Minnesota trait that we have some of the highest labor participation rates, the lowest unemployment rates, um, but we also have very robust growth in our economy that needs to be filled with a workforce. And I think being deliberate how we do that makes a difference. 
You have uh, proposed a big spending increase for schools. Yes. A tax credit uh, for families with children. That's correct. Um, a family and medical leave plan. Uh, you also said the other day that you want to do more with public safety. Yeah. And what did you mean by that? What, what's on your well, mind? Well, I had a plan last year, a robust plan. It ended up being about $450 million. About $300 million of that was basically you know, no strings attached back to communities to make their decisions. If that meant hiring more police officers, then they needed to do so. If it meant retention bonuses, if it meant building or buying a new fire truck, building a new fire hall. Uh, I think with the, the, the budgets where it's at, where the healthy revenues are where we're at, that it makes sense to get those back to local communities. And I think it was a, I, I still feel strongly about it, a plan that invested both in those public infrastructure around public safety, but it invested upstream, making sure we had some of these violence interrupters who were out there, making sure that we had prosecutors have what they need. Um, we've been talking about making sure the BCA has the uh, scientists to do the DNA testing and run the gun analysis. And so uh, I think it makes sense where we see an uptake in violence. And Minnesotans, I, I, I continue to say this, Minnesotans have a low tolerance for crime, and that is a good thing. We cannot become desensitized that this is not normal. Our children are involved in this. Um, gun violence has touched nearly every one of our families. And I, I'm just thinking now we have the resources to do this. I think when you see me come out with my, my revised budget with the new numbers we saw this week, that we'll plus that up. So a, a, a bigger amount, yeah. but still the focus on sending it back to the local communities. Yeah, and then plussing up the BCA. To okay. we're good partners in this. This is where they can't, you know, they get behind and making sure these prosecutors have what they need. They've been asking us for this. We've been putting it in the budget since 2019. Things like the new BCA lab down in Mankato uh, continue to push for those. I think there's bipartisan agreement on this. Um, you can use political rhetoric, but no one wants to see our children have guns in their hands shooting one another. No one wants to see people uh, seeing crime uptick. And and we've been making good progress, but I still believe this is that um, Minnesotans won't believe you're making good progress until we get back to those levels that we are accustomed to seeing, which is very, very low numbers of crime, especially violent crime. Well, let me ask you about that issue uh, of guns and specifically young people with guns because we saw a violent weekend in St. Paul last yeah. week, for example. Um, uh, there are a couple bills moving, one that would expand background checks for gun purchases, the other one that would set up those uh, extreme risk yeah. protection orders or red flag laws, yeah. as they call them. Would either of those laws, if they passed, do anything about that problem of 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds solving their problems with guns? Not all of them, no. And I don't think that's the purpose of that. I hear people say, you know, this isn't going to fix all of these. No, but, um, you know, seatbelts don't fix every accident, you know, injury in an accident, but they do improve the odds. We know in states where we had extreme risk protection orders, and these are supported in red states like Florida. It was something that I helped usher through with uh, the Veterans Administration when I was in Congress. We know that one of the problems we have is still the highest percentage of people dying by gun violence is suicides with guns. And, and when we have family members and others that are involved in a legal way, they do make a difference. I think background checks, you know, we certainly see it in these mass shootings. In almost every case of the mass shootings, those are legally purchased firearms. And I think anything you can do um, to strengthen that system to make it a little more difficult. But I think this goes back to this is that broader approach to public safety. We need to make sure that our kids have a place to go after school. We need to make sure that they're being, their families have the opportunity. When we talk 
talk about things like paid family and medical leave, we know that families that start out with having significant time with the parents being with the child right after birth see increased reading scores, see lower incidence of truancy, those types of things. And it just makes sense where families are super busy. They're trying to make ends meet. If we can create some of these situations, whether it be in maternity, paternity leave, or for health issues, we can make a difference. So I, I think listening to people say, you know, this this crime would have still happened. Yeah, in many cases that might be the case, but that's not an excuse to not try and attempt to reduce the numbers to make our streets a little safer. And I say this on both of those issues as a gun owner myself, neither one of those two things would prohibit me or anyone else from legally purchasing a firearm for uses that aren't meant to be criminal or to sell them to straw purchase, but there's more we can do. Uh, just getting back to your overall budget proposal, you say that your goal is to uh, make Minnesota the best state to raise a family. Yeah. Uh, wh- what does that look like to you? What does that mean? Yeah, I think it makes life more affordable to have a child, making sure that we're seeing people who can have affordable housing. I think there's some things we can do there, some down payment assistance, especially for those uh, those folks who've been marginalized. I think it's making things like child care. You know, we're talking about the child tax credit, which is some of the folks that have are most, you know, insecure financially on the other end. But for middle class families, two teachers, two nurses, a, a, a newspaper person or whatever – all of those people are trying to figure out how do you pay for good quality child care. And we've got, you know, a dependent care credit that comes back. Um, we think in a combination of these things with investments in education, investments in the child tax credit, investments in universal meals, all of a sudden life becomes a little more affordable. And we really believe, especially around this child care issue, that we've got a lot of folks making the decision to stay home because it just doesn't make financial sense to go to work and pay everything you make just to child care. And the problem with that child care industry too is, is that there's a shortage of it because you can't pay people enough to make that look like it's lucrative. And we think with the state to help incentivize that, it spurs economic growth. Our council for economic expansion made up of fortune 500 company CEOs, fed chair, working people. Um, one of the things that came out of that was, is that if Minnesota is going to be competitive in the future, we have got to have things like childcare. We've got to have things like paid family medical leave. We've got to have the best schools for all their children. That's how you're going to attract. People are going to start making decisions where they live. And let's, mm-hmm. let's face it, that um, there are some states that are making the decision that they're going to divide us, to demonize some folks. Minnesota's making the case that we want you to come here and be valued. We want your family to be the family that you want them to be. And we want that to be affordable enough that you can able to get out there, work, start your own business. And another part of your tax plan is uh, to give those checks back to people yeah. within some certain income limits. Um, it seems like you're having a hard time convincing your DFL friends to go along with that. Yeah, and I, I understand where they're coming from. They believe that we can target some of these things on the things I'm talking about. I'm trying to convince them this isn't an either-or, and I feel like many Minnesotans feel like um, – put this money back in our hands and we'll make some decisions on how to use it. And and I think that uh, security that comes with some of this, this might be first and last month's rent for people to get into new housing. Um, it might be a vacation for your family that might be there. But the fact of the matter is between COVID, federal changes in some of the things they did in aid and support during COVID, and buying patterns that changed, we saw historically high uh 
corporate profits, which is a good thing. And this is not about penalizing corporations for being successful. It's asking folks to pay their fair share. And I think what we're saying is, is that we have this surplus. We're going to build roads and bridges. We're going to make life more affordable. We're going to do roads, you know, all of the things we're talking about. But there's also the opportunity here to put a chunk of this back into that. I'm not talking about spending at all, but I do believe Minnesotans can make the choices with that. I think, you know, $2,600 for a family with a couple of kids, um, making sure that that's federally tax exempt and things, that, that that makes a difference right now. And I think when you're seeing you know, things that are a bit out of control, whether it's the war in Ukraine or whether it's highly pathogenic avian influenza that's making eggs more expensive. Mm. All those things aside, what it means is it's more expensive for families to live. And I think if you put money back in their pockets while we're doing all these other good things, it gives us a good down payment. There are some who say, why not give the money back on the basis of who paid the most in taxes, you know, why not? Well, uh, percentage-wise, um, a lot of this was was sales tax and things like that. It was gasoline, it was heating, it was all of the things that you paid. The collections we made were from corporations. The, the, you know, this myth out there that we raised taxes on people and overcollected money. No, there was changes in buying patterns, and and I don't make any bones about this. Um, we're not going to give it back to people making millions in this only because it, at this point in time, they're fine. And the impact that we make on workers, and this is why you get a lot of people saying, I'm perfectly comfortable with this. They're looking for workers in their businesses, and they're saying, yeah, make life a little more affordable for them. So I, I hear that idea. Um, just for an example, though, the child or, or the dependent credit I'm talking about, you can make up to $200,000 and participate in that. So I'm talking directly to middle class and working families. And this isn't about demonization of the wealthy, but but I'm telling you at no time in this nation's history did those in the top 5% make more money than they did during COVID and good for them. I'm just asking that they pay their fair share and I don't think they need a rebate at this point in time of the things that we can do. We're talking with Governor Tim Walls right now. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're in the state capitol building of uh, Great to be able to broadcast from here. Uh, Governor, well, let me uh, – the the Republicans keep hammering you on the Social Security tax. Yeah. Uh, they say, why not just eliminate it altogether like most other states do? Why exempt – you know, just, yeah. just broaden that exemption? Why not well, just – Well, and I hear them, and you know, we did expand that exemption in 2019. I hope they're expending the same amount of energy talking to their Republican colleagues in Washington who are talking about raising the retirement age to 70 or, worse yet, eliminating Social Security and Medicare. Look, it's the same principle on this other that the folks we're going to in the proposal I put forward um, – would reduce taxes on 90% of Social Security recipients. It would raise the rate up above 50% of people who don't pay a penny of state tax on Social Security. Um, and the, the idea there is, is we certainly want to make those folks whole. We want to do the best possible. To remove it on the last maybe 5 to 10% of people ends up costing the state quite a bit that we in turn use to reinvest in quality of life for seniors. There's a reason that groups like AARP are not supportive of a full repeal of the Social Security tax because Minnesota is an age-friendly state that we reinvest those dollars. So it's really about a fairness thing. The folks who are making the maximum amount of Social Security and have the maximum amount of income um, 
um, from other sources. Um, we certainly think they're going to be okay in this. What we're making sure is if you're depending solely on Social Security, I do believe you should be exempted from that. Minnesota does exempt, as I said, roughly 50% of people pay nothing. Um, I think one of the issues here is having the conversation, and this started in the mid-'80s, is the federal tax on Social Security. But I hear folks on this. I think we continue to raise where we're at. I think our proposal does that but leaves enough to invest in the things that make quality of life improved. Uh, we've noticed this, uh, certainly, and uh, I'm sure you've heard it, too. A lot of people using the word extreme when they talk about that abortion rights bill that you signed because it doesn't have any restrictions in the late stages of a pregnancy. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, it's not extreme to listen to women and to have that decision made between their care provider and them in the exam room. And, and look, um, there's no doubt that the last election was clearly a referendum on reproductive rights, and Minnesotans spoke loudly across the spectrum on, on voting rights. What we know is is that many of these concerns that they bring up simply don't happen in real life. Women don't choose to have a late-term abortion because they think it's an easy thing or they forgot to do it earlier. They do it because their lives are at risk. They do it because of complications that couldn't be expected. And the idea that we would put something in there that a decision is being made with the best possible outcomes for that mother with a health care provider does doesn't make any sense. So the extreme position is is that no exception. The extreme position is, is to criminalize, which we're seeing in some states. We're simply asking and trusting Minnesotans and their care providers to make decisions about their own health care. Do you see Minnesota? Well, people are already coming here uh, because of reproductive rights. Uh, do you see Minnesota as sort of a, a beacon to people who are looking from other states that have been more restrictive? Well, they're certainly coming here because their lives are at risk in other states. They're certainly doing that because you have elected officials and governors who've told them they know better than they do, even though you see a story every single day of something complicated in a pregnancy and they need to get this, and they're being told no, and if they do, it's criminalized. So I think we've made this clear. Minnesota's a state where we'll protect your freedoms, whether that is your freedoms on reproductive rights, whether that's your freedom to be who you and your child are. Um, your freedom to read the books that you want to read. And I think this discussion out there, and I, I know people throw around the extreme on this, um, it's not extreme to trust people to make their own decisions around some of these things. And so I think Minnesota will be this. And just be candid, Mike, I, I think the decisions we're making about affordability of life, of moving towards a clean energy economy on job creations and opportunities will be there. I'm already hearing this when I'm talking with you know other folks in other states, other governors, and internationally when I talk to, um, when we're in Norway or we're in Finland, they're going to be looking at states that share their values on these issues of moving forward. And I have to tell you, if you're a if you're a worker, a working family, if you're a teacher, if you're a female CEO, for example, I would think about where the states you're going to, what freedoms do you have, what opportunities you have. I'm making no bones about it in some of these states where you're being told um, that you can't have certain books in your classroom. You're being told that you're, you know, you're you're negatively influencing this out of these professions. I'm telling folks, if you want to enjoy what this profession is and make a difference in people's life, come to Minnesota. So I think what you're going to see in this country is people are going to be making decisions about what's there. And I think Minnesota is a place um, that is continuing to lean into this idea of trusting people, of investing in the future, of working towards that clean energy economy. So I'm yes, I do think it's becoming that. And and you do you see this as a way to counter the aging of the population yes. and the declining workforce? I do. And our again, this uh, our council on economic uh, 
expansion we talked about this it's just demographic and you're seeing it in the northern states and i've said this and i don't it's not facetious um when arizona runs out of water you're going to be looking at coming back to duluth and those types of things happen we know that climate is a piece of this but we know it in people's minds it's not it's not everything and um whether it's norway finland japan all aging populations with high quality of life that mirrors minnesota maine some of these states we're making it clear that we're putting things in place that make life more affordable, that make these choices more leaning towards you, that we trust people about those decisions. And I think you're going to see migration patterns because you'll hear people say that I don't want to pay the tax in Minnesota. I'm moving to Florida. Mm. Um, Look at the data on that. It doesn't happen very often. Mm. What I'm most concerned about is 18 to 24 year olds leaving rural Minnesota because we don't have enough broadband housing economic opportunities in these quality places to live, places where I lived and my family grew up. Um, those are the things that I think we need to counteract and make the case that all across Minnesota, you're going to get a quality education, you're going to have quality infrastructure, and you're going to have opportunities um, economically so that you can choose to live in whatever part of the state you want to. So yes, this is very deliberate. It's a very deliberate way to counteract, which is a natural demographic trend. We're getting older and a recognition that 20% of the workforce uh, in Minnesota, or excuse me, uh, in 20 years, over half the workforce is going to come from communities of color. So these issues around equity, the issues around not discriminating because of hair, the ideas of um, Juneteenth and, and celebrating what it means for a big chunk of the population on that date finally started to see their emancipation and their freedom. So, yeah, we're making a conscious effort around that. And to just to change the subject a little bit, since we're running a little short on time, uh, just this morning you signed the bill that would uh, restore the right to vote to people convicted of felonies as soon as they are out of incarceration. Right. Uh, so if they're still on parole or some That's other right. supervised release, they, they can vote. Uh, why was that important to you? Well, it, it's a huge piece of democracy, and I think when people think about this, they did their time. And they're on probation. Now, another issue we're trying to deal with is Minnesota has some of the longest probation periods. Statistically, we know that people are going to reoffend within mostly their first five years of probation. Had a young woman today on a drug charge, convicted when she was really young, did a year in jail, had 40 years of probation, which she wouldn't be able to. She's a drug counselor. She's heavily involved in her community. She's beloved by a lot of folks there. We're making the case if you really want people to come back out and not reoffend, and want them to be bought back into their community, you need to make sure they're engaged. This idea that you put people in prison and don't give them any skills, and when they come out, they have no place to live, no job to get, they can't vote, that doesn't work. And what we know is that this does nothing except punitive. It doesn't make our community safer by not allowing them to vote. It doesn't um, reduce recidivism rates. So it's just really important to make people whole. And, and this country is founded on this idea of section changes and redemption and to restore this idea and to see the folks over there saying, I, I feel whole, I feel back in my community um, is critically important. And then there's a good story in the the Washington Post today. Um, they're about evenly split in their political beliefs too. So mm. don't be thinking. So you might not get no, a lot of votes. Out of this. No, no, I'm, I'm sure that you, we restored rights today. The people who don't agree with a single thing I say okay. and good for them. They should vote accordingly. But I think it's critical when we see democracy under attack, we see people trying to undermine trust in elections and asking, how do we reintegrate people so they don't reoffend? This is a really great step forward. So I'm, I'm excited about this one. Another one you'll be signing in a couple of days probably is the um, 
one that allows people to get driver's yeah. licenses regardless of their immigration status. Why is that important? Yeah, I've been on this since 2005 when I ran for Congress and because I know in southern Minnesota that our immigrant community, especially our Hispanic immigrant community, is working heavily in agriculture. You won't find a milking parlor that doesn't have hardworking folks delivering milk and, and doing those things. Um, the issue is folks are here, and we know that we need federal immigration reform. We know we want people to get legal status to be able to be here, but it doesn't change the fact that these are folks here that are doing, they're paying taxes, they're working, they're taking their children to the doctor if they need to, and they're running to go get food or formula if they need it. The idea that you would put them out there without being licensed, being insured, and and feeling that if they see or are involved in an accident, they would stay there. We want to train people to be able to do this. This came about in the years after 9-11. It was based out of fear Fear of the foreigner. There's no doubt about that there was a lot of that going on. What we know is, is that in states that have allowed folks to do this, they've seen a drop in hit and run accidents. They've seen less of this going on and they've seen more participation of folks coming out of the shadows. And so this is a really important one. It's important. And again, this doesn't change the conversation that I'd be the first to tell you we need to have federal immigration reform to bring folks out and make sure that you're here in a documented status. But you can't just turn a blind eye and say that. And and for the critics who say, you know, it's going to allow people to vote, none of those things are true. Again, these are folks that want to drive to work legally, want to get insurance, and might want to drive over to their child's school to pick them up after school. So this is another thing about come to Minnesota, you'll be treated with dignity. Almost out of time, so let me ask you a couple real quick ones. Uh, Sports betting, legal sports betting, that doesn't seem like a top priority for you, is it? You know, I I trust adults to make their own decisions. I certainly support it. I want the legislature to work through their magic and work things out. I say basically the same thing around cannabis. I think the only thing with cannabis is you've got some inequities that happen with incarceration Mm -hmm. and some of those things. But the fact of the matter is I trust adults to make their own decisions on these things. The legislature can work these out, and we should be able to get these things done. All right, last question on cannabis. The Star Tribune raised this possibility this week. Yeah. Former Governor Jesse Ventura as cannabis commissioner? <laughs> so, well, I'm grateful the governor's come out, and he and I have uh, have talked on many issues. I think seeing him back in the public, there's something about an elder statesman or someone who's done this job, and he feels very strong. He has a very personal story about he and his wife found relief in this. This is how I got involved with this, with VA and pain relief. Um, I think we want him engaged. All right, Governor, that wasn't a no, I think. <laughs> Governor Tim Walls, thanks so much for coming on today. I really hope we can talk again before the end of the session. Thanks, Mike. Have a good weekend. You too. And that will do it for Politics Friday this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're going to keep this up until the end of the legislative session, so I hope you can tune in every week. Our producer is Matthew Alvarez. He did a terrific job this week. We had technical help today from Jess Berg, also a terrific job, and Alex Simpson. Alex did okay, too. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Have a great weekend. We'll see you again here next Friday. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to the Politics Friday podcast on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live on the radio, tune in each Friday at noon. Join us for interviews with lawmakers and conversations about what's been happening at the Capitol and beyond.